Hey everyone, as the year comes to a close, we hope that you're feeling that holiday spirit. On today's episode, we've got Matt Ermey. Matt is the founder and CEO of Artist Growth, a cloud-based software which helps streamline workflow for music professionals. As an independent musician and poet, Matt shares his expertise and perspective on how indie artists can use social media to connect with and grow their audience while attracting attention from labels, management, and agencies. So without further ado, let's get right to it. And now, hosted by Harry G, this is your one-stop shop for hot talk straight from the top. Whether you're trying to build a job in pop, rock, or any other artsy schlock, here's your top dog with info that can't be bought, it's gotta be sought. So sit back, crack a six-pack, cause we're about to chit-chat and rip facts. It's the First Act Podcast. Today on the podcast, we've got Matt Ermey. Matt is the CEO and founder of Artist Growth, a music tech company that he's going to tell us all about. Matt is also a singer-songwriter. He's a poet. And you've probably some more things that I haven't even mentioned, right? Maybe. I'm a, I'm a father and a friend of, to folks, you know, if you get on the personal side. But professionally, you're, you're touching on everything. All right, cool. Why don't you tell us a little bit about artist growth and, you know, um, what what your goals are with artist growth? Like, what's the overall vision? Well, we've been around a number of years now, and I think it's like it's common with a lot of startups. The vision evolves. We've wanted to build a platform for artists and the institution to use not only to be more efficient in their own workflows, but also ultimately to be able to dial into each other and connect through the same platform. Sweet. So it sounds like you're bringing technology into the entertainment space in areas that need to be optimized. That's a big part of it. Like, like I know that I'm kind of, you know, taking like a 10,000 foot view there just to kind of summarize it. Right. And so who are your clients in particular? Are they artists or are they, is it a business to business model that you operate under or both? It's both. And it's funny, depending on who you talk to, um, you know, somebody will say we're a B2B SaaS business. And some people say we're a B2B to C SaaS business. I worry less about those things. Our clients do range from artists who are just starting out at the very, very earliest stages of their career who don't yet have a manager or an agent or a label or any of those things. They're doing it all themselves. And in that context, our software becomes a way for them to start to put some organization and infrastructure around the work that they're doing, keeping track of things, building a portfolio of data that they can call up on their phone that shows and reflects all of the hard work they've been putting into their career. We also have artists that do have managers and agents and label deals. And in, in that context, it's generally the tour manager and production manager and manager who use are, are the main owners of the artist growth account. And similar to, to other, some other software whether you've got Paul as a guest on your show, he very similarly, it becomes a tool that the team around the artist uses whether it's on tour or in the back office of the management company. So artists are clients, tour managers and, and artist managers are clients. And then we also have client base of record companies and they use it in that context, primarily as an internal tool at the label to organize around things like promo and radio and marketing, and also to interface in a more real time and streamlined way with artist management so they can coordinate on what's all the different activities and, and levels of activity that are happening around an album cycle or a certain thing that an artist is doing to make sure that management and the label stays in sync. So those are three of the like main use cases or contexts, I would say, about our, about our clients. 
And so, so it sounds like, you know, you do have businesses that use your software. You've got some client, you've got artists that use your software as well. And let's actually, let's, let's take a little bit of a step back. Like when did you start your business? So we launched the very first prototype iOS app um, with a very minimal web aspect to it in January of 2012. The idea really came into focus, I think in late 2009 and then definitely all of 2010 and the first half of 2011 was me and uh, my partner at the time trying to figure out how to build a business plan and how to build all of the required you know presentation materials needed to raise capital and learning about what all that means and it was really a, a trial by fire learn as we go and so by mid 2011 i was successful in raising a first small tranche of angel capital which allowed us to build that first prototype app in the second half of 2011 and then bring it to market in january of 2012. can i pry and peek behind the curtain a little how much money did you raise initially to develop i guess we'll call it like a minimum viable product well it, it came in you know we didn't do it and a lot of it was because i was relying solely on the advice of, of other people i had never gone through this process myself at the time and we didn't do what a lot of people do which is like to raise a round with like a close date. It's like we raised $500,000 and then boom, like the round is done. Right. We had a rolling thing of angels where it was like they were, we were, they were tranching money into us as we went. And as we hit milestones and it was like, so we basically had a group of people around us that said, okay, we'll commit up to a million dollars and we'll tranche that in as you need it. As, as you go through the process, it's sort of like when you build a house, right? You go to the bank and you say, I have some land, I want to build a house on it. And the builder says, here's the budget and here's the timeline. And it's going to cost $200,000 to build your house. The bank is like, okay, great. So start working. And then when you need to draw down, we have the budget and your line items. And as you need like to buy the wood and the concrete and stuff like that, you invoice us for that. And we'll wire you 30 grand. And then you take care of that. And when that phase is done, you come back and you say you want to do the windows, you want to order the windows and invoices for that. And so it's a similar kind of model, I think, looking back on it, where they were like, okay, great, you've got your you've got your vendor hired and you've got a design spec in place and that cost you 30 grand and now you're ready to like actually go into development and you need 75,000 or 200,000, whatever it is. And so they would give us that. And it was a way to kind of put training wheels on us, I think, looking back. You know, these angel investors were really wanting us to succeed and they didn't want us to like blow through a million dollars and not have anything to show for it. So they enforced some discipline on us. That's brilliant. I think that it sounds like you found some incredible angel investors. Like, I guess they must've been like friends of yours or family friends or right. Yeah, it was, it was a local, most of them were local Nashville people and a couple key ones we met through personal networks and it was like, Hey, you know, I introduce you to this guy. He's a professional uh, entrepreneur in his own right and has been very successful and he invests his personal money in startups and and then those couple first couple sort of believers introduced us to their network of people that they were friends with that were also successful entrepreneurs and, and invested made personal angel investments and so the money didn't so much come from friends and family but the connections to and some of it did I, for sure some there was some friends that that also wrote checks and some family that wrote but the the lion's share of it came from other entrepreneurs or businessmen and women that had been successful and were looking to put some of their capital to work in startups and and kind of to, to make money and also to give back and and help mentor other entrepreneurs that were up and coming and trying to do things that's that's a really great position to be in and it just makes me think that like 
we talk a lot about networking and relationship building on the podcast, like from episode to episode, it's like a huge thing that we preach just because like you can't, you can't thrive in an industry like entertainment without good relationships. And it seems like, you know, even, even as you take a step outside of entertainment and more into the technology side or entrepreneurial side, you, you need to build and foster those relationships in the same way so that, you know, you can flourish in your career. Mm-hmm. So you built this app and you launched it where? On the App Store, on, on Apple? Yeah, so we, we had an Android and an iOS. I refer to them as prototypes because that's what they were really, even though we called it like a product. It was a prototype. Well, yeah, they were like beta tests. It was proof of concept, essentially. So we had an iOS and an Android version of that proof of concept. Then we also had a, a, a pretty bare bones web interface that would interact. And so it was, it was in the cloud. And you know, we started from day one, I think, on the right footing, which was building a cloud, knowing that it, it would need to actually be, the data would need to be syncable across the devices automatically in a, in a database and model that was able to be networked that way. So we did that. Um, and then we were really focusing on that time on just the independent artist side of it, because that's what we were. And we, we wanted, you know, we had lived that journey of like riding around in a van and playing gigs and not being organized and having nothing to show for it from a business standpoint after, you know, five years or more of doing it, it's like, yeah, we have lots of sales, but I don't really have any record of those sales because they were all at shows. It was, well, let's build an app that will help these guys do that simply on the fly, pull it out of their pocket. Boom, boom, boom. Here's my merch sales. Boom, boom, boom. Here's my expenses. Here's my album sales. And then it's just building up over time, little by little. And you, you don't have to be an accountant. You don't have to like learn how to use Microsoft Excel. That was our initial thing. Um, but it became really clear that, and then it was like, we'll get to the bigger industry side later, but it became really clear to me in the first six months, we weren't going to make any money with that being our, our strategy. And so I quickly pivoted everything to the mission is the same, but we're going to focus on the enterprise first because there's money there. And we'll eventually circle back to service this independent artist community. Once we have our footing established as a business. And that set us off on a journey that has led us to where we are. And that was a, another trial by fire because I wasn't as ready to serve that community of enterprise businessmen and women as I was the artist community in terms of like knowledge of their day-to-day operations and what life was like. So I had to learn about my customer as I was building stuff in real time and trying to sell it to them in real time, which was very wild and very stressful and very exciting. And you know that's what I've been doing for the last seven and a half, eight years. It's very respectable that you've been able to build a career out of this. How did your investors react to you choosing to pivot in this direction? Well, I think the, the writing was on the wall um, that you know that we were getting tons of signups. I think the first three months we had over twenty thousand signups just from artists. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, but the conversion from the free free tier to the paid tier, the five dollar a month tier. They were, it was less than 2% or something like, I don't remember the exact numbers, but it was small. Right. You know? And so it was like, oh man. So instead of going back and saying, I don't know what to do, uh, you know, they're not signing up. I don't, I don't know what to do. I went and talked to somebody I knew who worked at a management company. And I, cause I heard they were looking to get off of their FileMaker pro system, um, that, that one of their managers had built and, and get into something more modern. And so I went to them and I said, Hey, look, here's my app. I built it for independent artists to use, but I want to expand it. I want you guys to use it. What, 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 what do you need to see 
added to this? How do you see this expanded in order for it to be valuable to you? An, an expanded calendar, uh, a greatly expanded deal info section. So it was basically like everything we had. It was a calendar. It was a list of events. It was metadata uh, managing, you know, events like here's the address of the venue and here's, you know, the whatever, the guarantee. But there was a lot more, right? So right. as you scale up in career, there's, you know, those contracts carry a lot more data. So they needed to see a lot more data management capabilities inside the general framework we already had. And so I quickly went and mocked all that up and created, a, a, you know, designs for them to look at and respond to. And after a, a few weeks of that, I got that company to agree to do a deal with me um, that if I was able to deliver all of that to them in I think six months time is what I promised them, would they go ahead and sign a deal, pay me half down. And um, after a few weeks of kind of going back and forth, they agreed to do it. Um, and so when I went back to my board of my the angel investors, instead of going, Hey, nobody's signing up and you know, I don't know what to do. It was, Hey, signups didn't happen the way you thought they were going to happen with indie artists. Um, even though we know the need is there because tons of people were responding to it and signing up, but turns out where they want to spend their money organization is not high up on the priority list. And right. so I, I went and I met with this company and I've got a, I've got an expanded design spec now from working with them and they've signed this deal and they're going to pay us X amount of money if I deliver this. And so I had an, I had an alternative path already mapped out and I already had deal and, and, and revenue ready to go and recognize some of that revenue before I even went and told them we need to pivot. Um, so the plan was already in motion. I had a real pathway forward and then it was like, Hey, and I, and here's how many management companies just like this one there are, here's the size of this market. We've always known it was here. We're basically just phase shifting who we're paying attention to. And we're going to focus on this segment of the market now because we can earn revenue and start building a business. And, and so they, they responded well to that. Um, yeah, well, absolutely. Especially if you're, if you're saying, well, you know, plan A didn't work out, but now we have plan B and plan B is actually going to make us more money than plan A, you know, as an yeah, investor, and it, I'd and be thrilled. It, and it wasn't that plan A is, is over. It's, it was really just, hey, plan A was these guys first, those guys second. We're reversing the order. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. It's just more phase one is going to be plan B, phase two or phase three will be plan A. Right. 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 And, and so can you talk a little bit more about like the financials of that first deal? Are you comfortable with that? It wasn't a huge deal. I mean, I think I don't remember the exact terms on that first one, but I think it was like 15 grand a year or like 20 grand a year or something like that. It was a pretty small deal, but it was, but for one client for one client. Yeah. But it was meaningful. You know, it's like a $15,000 ACV is you can replicate that a hundred times that's a really good outlook. If you can replicate it 10,000 times, that's a great outlook. And so we knew the market was there. I mean, we had some of those investors were music executives, so they were even kind of more comfortable taking that path because it was like, well, I know all these guys. They can make a lot of intros and they understand how that world works. And so they were able to really take me to school and help me understand like, here's the players, here's how this works, here's, here's how this whole ecosystem is set up. But but there weren't ten thousand music man like there aren't ten thousand music management companies I don't think that could afford fifteen or thirty thousand dollars a year as no, for a software. No, no, but there's indie labels and there's it's not we weren't just looking at management companies at that point we were really looking at the and more of just like the established music company B two B like who mm -hmm. who could use a cloud based calendar that has specific workflows around artist activity. Cool. And so it was a much wider view than just management companies or just tour management companies and. That's always been part of the vision, which is we don't, I, I didn't want to just focus on one. I really wanted to build something more broadly as an industry platform that ultimately was designed to help the artist 
even if building a platform for labels and managers, to me, in my mind, still today, is ultimately benefits the artist because you're helping the artist team function better, more, more inexpensively, more efficiently, so they can do their jobs better, which their jobs are to support the artist and, and help build a career of the artist they are serving. Um, so it's, a, it's, a, it's another way of benefiting the artist to give their team a better infrastructure that's more modern. So let's shift for a moment. You know, we're talking about indie labels and management companies who are working with developing acts. Mm-hmm. So what can an act right now do? I know that you are a musician who's, you've been on the road, you've felt like that struggling life, you know, when you're just like, mm-hmm. oh, we have some money tonight. We don't have money the next night, but we're just going to spend the money. What can artists do now, you know, on their limited budget to grow, but also gain attention or the right kind of attention from I'd say like labels, management companies, agencies, in your opinion? Well, before 2020, I think a lot of people would have said, well, you got to go perform and build build an audience. And I, I've been increasingly over the last couple of years more hesitant to have that be my default answer, like you have to tour. It became this sort of like catch line in, in the music industry, like, well, the only way artists make money is to go on tour. The thing is, when you're on your own, it's very hard to build an audience going on tour because what does tour really mean? Like you're going out every weekend or every other weekend or for four or five day runs in, in the region in which you live and you're playing in bars, you're playing house shows. You can build an audience. And if you really connect with people, they'll tell their friends and it can, it can and does happen that way for people. Um, and certainly back in like 2000, 2005, as late as 2010, like, that was the primary way to do it for sure. Because in 2005, nobody had an iPhone. 2005, YouTube didn't exist. But ever since like 2017, 2018, like I, I've really pulled away from the idea of, well, you got to go on tour to make money. And that's how you build an audience. I really believe that the music industry, and this is a transition that's happening right now, and it, it's speeding up. That, that rate and that inertia is compounding. The music industry is in this very interesting place where it used to have this very specific identity in the media world. It was, it was the music industry and they sold, they sold vinyl records and they sold CDs and they sold cassettes. And the only way to get music other than the radio was to go buy these physical products and we'll take them home and listen to them. And it was an experience. And because of that very, very specific experience that the fans and consumers had, music had this very specific identity in the media world. It was different than video. It was different than movies. It was, it was the music industry and movies was the same way. Like it was, you had to go to a movie theater and big Hollywood studios created these things for you and you had to go to the theater to experience it. So it had a very specific identity. Now I think those lines are beyond blurred. Music is now one aspect of the media industry, the digital media industry. And it's like, the music industry is becoming something different where, you know, if, whether you're a YouTuber who sings or writes books or whatever, or if you're a musician and a singer songwriter who also has a YouTube channel or starts a podcast, the music industry is recognizing that they can monetize any kind of digital content. And so they want their artists, their creators, their, their musicians to create as much, many types of formats as digital content as possible. And they want to leverage that across all their supply chains. So they want their artists to have YouTube channels and they want their artists to start podcasts and they want their artists to go on tour and they want their artists to be on Instagram and doing all these different things. And so if you're a musician, you're not expected to just write songs, 
record an album, get in a car and go play it for people. You're expected to have a YouTube channel and know how to use a video camera and know how to light yourself and know how to do audio engineering to a degree. And you're expected to be in all these places on all these digital venues. And so I'm wrestling with it right now and I'm watching all, uh, people across all walks of life in the music industry wrestle with it right now. I was like, what is happening? This is, it's, it's music is evolving into media, the broader media context and, and, and musicians are expected to do all of it. And if you're starting out now and you're asking me, what would I tell an artist they need to do to start building something that would help them work with an agent or a manager or get a record deal would be without spending money and without having to go run yourself physically into the ground, exhausting yourself, would be to take whatever tools you can get your hands on by borrowing and buying whatever you can afford to test out how it feels for you to create across all these different platforms. Going into a studio, just writing a song and going into a studio and making an album feel comfortable for you, great. Okay. Does it feel comfortable for you to like start a podcast? Does it feel comfortable to get on YouTube and post content to YouTube and Instagram and Facebook. And what parts of this don't feel comfortable and figure out why it doesn't feel comfortable because part of your identity, part of the business that you build and the brand that you build and the thing that's going to have to be showing signs of life before an, a label or a manager or an agent's going to talk to you. You have to know what, what's going to naturally come out of you across these channels and which ones you're not going to use and why you're not going to use them and then start getting really good at all these different channels to where you start to build this presence online because more than butts in seats and and merch sold on the road now i think it's it's important to show people like i'm able to connect and i'm able to produce content across multiple multiple formats and those different types of content resonate with an audience and I can I can show you the audience because I'm using my YouTube analytics and I'm using my streaming analytics and here's my audience and I've got the same audience and the same demographic coming coming to see what I'm doing across platforms and if you can show growth there if you can show traction and energy in that space I think you're going to be positioned way way more effectively to, to sit down with a label or a manager as opposed to being like i've been on the road for 10 years busting my ass in my econoline van and i i play 500 cap rooms they're like well what does that mean what does that mean and i don't monetize 500 cap rooms i monetize 10 different digital media platforms right and and where do you fit into that ecosystem and it's a weird weird thing to tell an artist who's like a singer songwriter because their passion, the reason they got into it is because they're expressing their poetry and their art and their thing through music and storytelling. Um, but I think the reality is you have to find a way to take what you're doing with your songs and expand that and widen your, widen your tool, your toolbox, so to speak, to be able to resonate with people across multiple platforms. And that is a, that is a weird place that we find ourselves in. Yeah. I think there's a lot that I agree with with what you said. And, you know, it's, it's hard to tell an artist, you know, from somebody who's working more on the business side of things. And, you know, I've managed my own clients and music and comedy, and I'm somebody who was totally not comfortable creating content like at all. And I went ahead and I just started a podcast because I'm like, mm -hmm. well, I have things that I can talk about. And I kind of sat down and I said, well, what kind of value can I provide? You know, like that was my way of connecting with people is just, mm -hmm. How can I use my skill set 
and my network and my resources to provide value. And the way that I'm providing value is, you know, my audience are mostly students or recent grads who are looking to build a career in entertainment. So I just started doing it. And if you listen to the first few episodes, like I didn't really know how to edit. Right. And, you know, I, I was telling you just, you know, before, I, I don't even really know that much about the tech or I didn't at the beginning. And you learn as you go, but you need to kind of power through like those first like five, six, seven, 10, 12 episodes where you have no idea what you're doing and you're kind of faking it and figuring things out on the fly and don't get too bogged down. You absolutely, you can't get bogged down by, by the equipment or by the knowledge. The lack of knowledge, I mean, same thing with artist growth. Like if I had waited until I had gone through two or three entrepreneur accelerators and I was like ready to be an entrepreneur, I never would have done it. Right. I never would have done execute. it. I just dove in and started going. And I think what helped me raise money in part was, yes, I had a business plan and it was well thought out and it had gone through multiple rounds of, of getting shredded by experienced entrepreneurs. But mm. I also had a tenacity and a drive to do this that these human beings who were looking at me and meeting me were like, damn, let's see what this kid's going to do. They saw me dig in harder and the harder it got, the harder I dug in. And they stayed, a lot of them stuck with me through the journey because I don't know what it is you see that makes you continue down a path with somebody. But I, I would tell artists like full in, full commitment, you got to go no matter what, just start doing it because that's what's going to inspire your fans and any business person who might come along and help you. Right. Like, and, and it's exactly because you create this like gravitational pull it goes back to building relationships because as you're doing your thing, yeah, it's great. You know, you could be promoting in a bunch of Facebook groups. You could be promoting across, you know, Reddit and wherever, you know, mm -hmm. try to try to market yourself creatively. You know, my lesson is that like, don't overthink the quality of your content or what you're trying to reach. Just get it out. You know, you can, you can spend days, weeks, months, probably even years trying to perfect, like I'm sure like your business plan or the first prototype or second prototype of artist growth. Right. But yeah. at a certain point you just need to say, okay, well, I'm going to, I'm going to release this and I'm going to get feedback because I need to know how I can improve this. What is resonating well with my audience? What do they like about it? What do they not like? Maybe YouTube's not the right platform for me. I'm going to give it a shot for six months. I'm going to see, I'm going to power through and do as much as I can. But you know what? Maybe TikTok is better for you or maybe Instagram is better, right? And maybe it's a combination because there's a lot of transferable skills that you're going to learn from one platform right. to the next. And you're ultimately the goal is, like you said, it's just to connect with people. Yeah. And I think learning of those transferable skill sets that apply to these different platforms where audiences exist now, knowing which ones you, you feel comfortable working inside of and which ones you don't is a huge thing because... And I sort of assume when I talk to artists who are trying to do something these days, I sort of assume like you're all in, like you, you've made it, you've, you've already jumped, you're in the deep end now and you're swimming in the waves. It's not, you're standing on the shore trying to think about whether or not you're going to do it. Um, cause, cause if you're still on the shore, it's like, well, you just got to jump in yeah. and start and start learning how to swim. But I assume if I'm talking to somebody that's already there in their mind, they're like, I'm in, I'm going, I'm putting up music, I'm doing whatever I can. I'm dog paddling in, in the, in the ocean then it's like, okay, the landscape has changed. You can't just go on tour anymore. You, you got to find out what you're comfortable doing. Are you comfortable talking to a camera and looking at yourself and doing a YouTube thing? Or are you more comfortable doing a podcast? Or are you more comfortable doing a podcast with four other artists? Maybe you get together with other artists, but you got to find a way. You got to find a way to start building your method of getting on these platforms. I think if you're going to try to attract people whose 
in business are thinking who's making content that resonates that I can monetize across the internet. And what if you're a business person? What if you're like a wannabe business person? You know, maybe you're in high school and you're more organized and you're not super creative or you're not, you don't feel like you're creative enough, but you, you know, creative people and you love the end, you know, and the arts, you love entertainment and you want to work in that. What can you do as a high school student or a college student to develop your skill set earlier so that you can get the attention of companies that would want you for an internship or as an assistant yeah. or, or more? Yeah, I mean, I think listening to podcasts like this and, and following and subscribing to YouTube channels of people like you, people like me, and anybody who's in the business already who's putting out content uh, that talks about how that world works and how it's set up, you got to devour that content. What about actionable things that they can do? Well, I mean, I think it's, I think sitting, so if you're going to sit in your room and you're going to listen to music because you love music, maybe, maybe 30 minutes of that a night, you're also on YouTube or listening to podcasts about the music business. How does it work? What does a manager do? What does an agent do? How do those two relationships coexist? And where does the label fit into that? And where does a business manager fit into that? And what's that ecosystem like? And how does the, how does the artist get paid? And how do those guys get paid? And once you start to understand that and like, what's a day in the life of a booking agent? What's a day in the life of, a, of an intern at a booking agency versus the intern at a label? And you understand what your life is going to be like. I think human beings naturally start gravitating towards a certain type of energy and a certain type of space to, to exist in. You know, I'm, I, I, I will never forget the first time I walked into a, a talent agency as a much younger man. And I watched the interaction between the head agent and his interns and his assistant for five minutes. I walked out and when, when I ended up leaving, saying to myself, I'm never, ever, ever going to work in that environment. <laughs> you need to have really thick skin. Well, and not because they're bad people, but I know myself and I'm an introvert. And I was like, I, I was uncomfortable just sitting in there and I wasn't even working there. Like I, I would be full of anxiety if I was in that kind of energy and environment. And it turns out I, I'm very comfortable charting my own path, even though I'm not like a super extroverted person, I'm comfortable charting my own path. And so for me, building relationships isn't something that I do at mixers or industry events. Like if I go, I was at a paradigm entertainment party a couple of years ago out in LA and, and. I had a meeting there at like five or something. And they're like, Hey man, stick around. We're having a big party and all our clients are coming. A bunch of clients are coming and the whole town's going to be here. And it was this huge thing. I was like, Oh, cool. Thanks. So, you know, we were all sitting there. I was the guy who, after like getting introduced around to five or 10 people and having really nice conversations and then everybody kind of moves on. Like I'm the guy who goes and sits in the corner and like starts writing poetry on a notebook and I could be anywhere. I'm not the kind of super extroverted person that goes around the room and works the room and, and tries to meet people and goes up to strangers and is like, Hey, how you doing? What do you do? What's your name? Blah, blah, blah. Some people are amazing at that. And that's an incredible skill set that I'm jealous as hell of, but I don't have it. So how do I network and how do I build relationships? Well, I do it through the work. I meet people in meetings and I establish a connection with them. I'm like, Hey, I'm talking to you about this project I'm working on. Tell me about your pain in the industry and I'll see if I can solve it. And then I go back for more meetings and over a period of time, you start to gain a sense of who someone is and a sense of trust and a sense of respect for that person just through the very act of interfacing with them in the day-to-day work. Um, and then they introduce you to somebody at a different company that they know. And they're like, Hey, you should meet Matt because he's doing some really cool shit and you should let him come tell you about it. And then you go meet that person. And over a while you, you develop a network that for me grows out of you're working on something and I'm working on something and can we find a way to work together? And if not, you know, 
what, what can I do that can help you or who can I introduce you to? And, and, and that's very much on that side of things, as opposed to this social side of things where, you know, you always hear the, the guys, I used to go to the like South by and places and these big managers would be up there who were like had massive careers and insane client lists. And it's like, how did you get started? And they're like, man, I literally just went to the bar at the four seasons and like put a credit card on a tab and just bought the room drinks and met everybody and, and led to my first gig as a manager at wherever. And, you know, it's like, okay, that's one way to do it. And there's nothing wrong with that way to do it. But I, I would have gone into the four seasons, put my card on a tab and then just like sat at the bar and been frozen and not known who to talk to. And so I would have pulled it out a napkin and started writing a poem. You know yeah. what I mean? So, so you got to know yourself and then relationship building comes out of that. I think. I really liked what you said before about the way in which that you've built relationships. It's like, you, you know, you know, you're not one to work a room. You'll go to the meetings or you'll go to the events and you'll just chat with whoever you're comfortable talking to, which is the right thing to do. It's all about building authentic relationships. Yeah. You don't want to be that jerk who's, who's walking around and just like meeting people for the sake of just meeting people. You want to be actually providing people with value. And that is how you build authentic relationships. Yeah. If there's not real value, people will wander off, so to speak, and, and stop answering your calls or you're responding to your emails. But I don't want to discount. I mean, I've met some people in my life who do, who are that, that guy that go into a big room like that and they work that room and they are so animated and they have such charm and such magnetism that people are drawn to them and, and they walk in, they walk up to a group of five people and those five people are immediately transfixed and in, and they just kind of like bring them into the conversation. If I walk up to a group of five people, it's so <laughs> awkward that, that like all of a sudden I'm imposing on what, on, on their moment. And, and if you are one of those people that has that magnetism, you can use that, I think. But at the end of the day, like if you don't have anything to back up that magnetism and there's not authenticity behind it, and you really are just a big personality, you might get a lot of attention initially, but people will walk away from you and people right. will be like, oh, that guy's just, yeah, he's, he's fun to have drinks with, but like, he's not a serious person or she's not a serious person. Don't, don't feel like you gotta like dim your light. If you are that person that can own a room, more power to you, but you do got to back it up with, you got to care about the people you're talking to. You have to be authentic about who you are. And then you do have to be interested in how you can help them and how you can help each other. Um, if you want to really what I would call like build an actual network or build real relationships. You spoke about pain. You, you said, you know, tell me where your pain is in your day to day and your responsibilities. And let me see if I can fix that. I think that is a really, really good approach to building a relationship, trying to just help people, right? Mm -hmm. Who doesn't want to be helped? Like, you know, if, if people don't want to be helped, sure. You know, you, there's not much you can do there, but a lot of people will take the, the helping hand if you're offering it, you know, out of just sheer kindness. And that's how you develop relationships because whether or not you were able to help them, at least you tried, you got to know what their problem was a little bit, a little bit more. And then, like you said, the next step was, you know, maybe I can't help you, but you know, in three weeks from now, you know, you've, you've met three or four other people that you've also tried to help. And then you're like, you know what, that guy actually has a similar pain to that guy, or that guy has the solution to that guy's pain. And you know what, I'm right. going to introduce them. And then, that is another way of building relationships, just introducing people to one another. You, you have to, you have to, everything's built on trust. Everything's built on trust and respect, you know, and I would say that's true to life. It's true in families. It's true in, in, in romantic relationships. It's certainly true in business and it's deeply true in the entertainment slash music business. If people don't trust you, you're fucked. 
Yeah. And, and, you know, and there's business guys that are very successful who you put 50 people in a room and said, do you trust this person? They'd probably be like, no, because they know that person is super shrewd and, and is a business person and is going to do whatever they can to gain an advantage. And so it's not necessarily they're like saying, I wouldn't necessarily trust them with like my deepest secrets, personal secrets, but I do trust them to do business because I know they're serious and I know that they're upfront about their ethics. Um, right. So even though they may be super shrewd and I, I need to play, play it smart and keep my cards close to the chest, I can trust them, trust that they're a serious person and that has some type of code and I can work with that code, whether or not it's the same code I have, it's still, it's still an arena with which you can operate. But if you're the kind of person where it's like, I just think that person's a liar or like that person just doesn't care about other people and, they, and there's going to be, it's going to be a one way street. They're black. That's, the kind, of, that's yeah. the kind of shit where it's like, you're going nowhere, man. You're going nowhere. So you can be aggressive, but you have to be consistent and you have to be uh, interested in, in the two way street, which is actual, a, a real relationship, be it personal or business. All right. Before we wrap it up, what's like the weirdest way that you've met a valuable contact? Most of the contacts that I meet are introductions. Somebody's like, Hey, you need to, you need to meet Matt, Matt, you need to meet this person. You guys are on similar, you guys are operating in a similar space and you should know each other. That happens to me a lot. And I always make sure to follow up. And sometimes it leads to long years, years long relationships and connections. And sometimes it's like, cool, nice to know that you're there. Um, and that's what you're doing. And that's what you're interested in. And I'm really glad, you know, I exist and this is what I'm doing. And you kind of go your separate ways and then maybe a year or two later you, you reconnect on something or that person sends you somebody else and you send somebody back. It's usually like that. It's just this interconnected web of people who everybody's trying to build their own thing. And so you empathize with, with everybody you meet because you're like, oh, I get it, man. I know what you're trying to do. And if I can be of any help, like if I meet somebody that should know you, like I'll send them your way. But I, I don't know if there's any like one weird standout, like you know, we, we crashed into each other at a restaurant and, and, uh, you know, ended up driving to Malibu and having dinner and then, and then, uh, you know, <laughs> became, became business partners. There's, I don't think I have a story like that. You know, I think a lot of people see entertainment as full of sharks and it's a very competitive field, which it is, but mm -hmm. it's also an exceptionally collaborative field. Like you need to know how to play both sides. At the end of the day, everybody cares about the art for the most part, you know, and, and it's a big thing to put yourself out there in the world and put, make yourself vulnerable. And when you're able to do that with honor and integrity and deliver on your promise, people respect that, you know, and that's what I would tell young students. Like if you're going to go out into the world as an artist or as a professional business person in the music industry that wants, wants to, wants to be a part of the industry, whatever it is you're making, whatever promise you're making to the market, whatever promise you're making to your employer or whatever promise you're making to your fans, you got to deliver on that promise. And, and that's learning the skill of not over-promising things you can't deliver on. Because if you, if you bank your promises, you will build respect and trust in the people that, that you are making promises to. And that can, that's dividends. That pays dividends over time. And it, it's like having your money in the market. You know, it just grows over time. And, and you, that's currency that you can't, you can't steal that. You have to earn that. It takes time and it takes elbow grease. And most people who are who I have, do have high positions in the music industry, they started in low positions. They got their ass kicked. They know what it's like to work for an amazing boss who's a mentor. They know what it's like to work for a complete shithead. And they've felt it. And so, you know, they have their stories and their narratives. And for the most part, they're not looking to beat you up. They're looking for people to make them go, oh, man, that person reminds me of me. 
I'm going to help them. I can't hire them maybe, but I'm going to point them in a direction that I think could help them. And, you know, that's, that's all about like people thinking you're a serious person and trusting you. Matt, thank you for sharing the most real of the real about building relationships and what this, this industry is all about. This is for music. This is for TV. It's for film. It's for anything arts. It's really for any competitive field, but you know, this is, this is the nucleus of how to get ahead, to build relationships and to be more collaborative with people. So thanks again for being on the show and for sharing this. Oh man, thanks for having me. And, and one thing I would add to, and this has nothing to do with like what we've been talking about, but I think given that there's this laser ultra focus on innovation and like where's everything headed and the new models and the new ways of doing things, I would counsel anyone who's an artist or anyone who wants to be a professional in the industry. Don't come in just looking to be the innovator and have this attitude of, well, you're, you're looking at it the old way, the old model, or you're from the old world, you're from the old way of doing things. And I'm about the future, man. Because if you don't know the old world and the old way that they did it and succeeded in doing it, then you can't innovate. You can think you innovate. But the people who innovate are the people who deeply understand the old way it was done and why it was done that way and why it worked in that context. And then they get creative and they figure out ways to make things happen in the new context and then even look forward beyond the current context to what might be coming. But if you don't know, like, so it's like if you want to be, if you want to be a singer songwriter and you've never listened to a Guy Clark album or a John Prine album or a Bob Dylan album, then how are you going to be a singer songwriter? If you can't even go back and listen, and you're like, oh, well, that's the old way of doing things, man. I just listened to Ed Sheeran, or I just listened to so-and-so. It's like, yeah, but I do too, and you should. Yeah, but you those guys get songwriters who, who, who have been around for a long yeah. time, who know the history of this business. You have to know the history. You have to know the history and the craft, and there's a craft to business. There's a craft to making a business model, and you have to understand why the old models existed and why they worked and why they don't work now. And you gotta, you got to be a student. you got to go learn all that shit. Or you can't be an innovator. You just, you're at that point, you're just a talker. And uh, if you're serious about like adding value and like innovating and being a part of that wave, then you got to know your history and you got to respect the shit out of it. Yeah. I could not have said that better myself, man. Right on. Well, hey, man, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks for sharing your story. Anytime. Hey everyone, just wanted to check back in and shout all of you out who are taking the time to check out the podcast, especially those of you who have been sharing it with your friends and writing me such nice messages on Apple Podcasts, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. If you or someone you know has an awesome story that you think should be shared with the world, feel free to write me directly on any of our socials at The First Act Podcast. Until then, stay safe.